Now take your Bibles, please, at John's Gospel and chapter 14. John chapter 14. Remember, we are dealing and have been dealing with the last night in the life of the Lord Jesus. Very well, he has taken his place at table. He has washed their feet. He's exposed Judas, kept the Passover. The last Passover showed its meaning and instituted the Lord's Supper. And now... What he's doing in these chapters 14, 15, 16 and 17, he talks to them and he instructs them and he's giving them his final message. Outside that little upper room, evil is rising like a flood. Hatred is unleashed and Satan is abroad and he fain thinks he will get the victory. We contemplated this morning, he never got the victory. They thought when they saw him in the tomb that it was all over, but up! From the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. But in this upper room, the disciples, they they were grasping the fact that there's trouble ahead, that they're going to lose him. He's going to leave them. They're distressed, they're perplexed, and they're terrified, really. They don't have understanding. And the Lord Jesus just sits down with them in these last nights, and he has this long talk to them. And in that message, he gives them comfort, and he gives them hope, and he gives them instruction. They're the three things to remember firstly. Remember how he starts in John 14? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. doesn't matter what's going on. Look, just let that word sink into your consciousness and quiet your soul. Remember how it ends in chapter 16? You know, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be a good cheer, be a good comfort. I have overcome the world. We had that again this morning. The overcoming victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's already happened, really, but we'll see it in its fullness and its finality in that glory that yet lies ahead. So he instructs them right through these passages of Scripture in this final message. And remember, we split it into four things that we were going to learn from it. One is, is, he tells them what it will be like when he is gone, the kind of world in which they will be living. And that extends to us today. He then explains to them the benefits that they will receive by him going away. Well, you'd hardly think there'd be any benefit in their mind. They're losing everything. And he opens up to their understanding the benefits they will receive. Then he also tells them their role in the world while he is away. What are they meant to do? That's really what he tells them. He's going, they're left, What is their task? And then finally, right through, he gives them that comfort and that hope and that joy in that sense of what lies ahead. They may behold my glory. They may be with me where I am. And it will be at his home, the Father's house, where he dwells and us dwelling with him. Now, we've dealt with the first one, what would be expected in the world whilst he is away. And you know, the fact is, we confronted it very severely, they could expect what? Persecution, hatred, and unbelief. That's basically it. And it would all be because of him. Because they called upon his name, they identified with his name. Because he had chosen them out of the world. And they were different because they were his. And because of him, they would face this persecution. They hated him, they will hate you. Right. And we spoke about persecution in the church, didn't we? And we saw something of 
where we're at in our experience right now. You know, we like to be liked, we sort of have been liked in a weird sort of a way in years gone by. Christians sort of respected, accepted, you know, with all their carry-on, they nonetheless acknowledge that they Christians made some sort of contribution, worthwhile contribution to society. And, you know, unfortunately, we've grown up with that kind of background mingled with a certain scoffing, but the dominant thing in the West has been that sort of semi-polite recognition and respect. Now, that's really coming to an end. And the reality of what the Lord Jesus said, hate, rejection, reproach and persecution are certainly coming our way. And we noticed the children of Israel, and that to me was really significant as I thought about it, reading in Genesis. You know, they all went down to Egypt, Jacob did, and his sons and his family, and it was wonderful down in Egypt, really. They had their own land to live in, the land of Goshen. Remember, they had their own jobs to do. They were all shepherds, and the Egyptians didn't want their jobs. They got nourished and fed every day, and they had a, a government that was really favorable to them, and they had their man in power, as it were. Joseph was there, Jacob's son, and he was the prime minister, and all was well. And then the scripture says, there arose up over Egypt a pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Now that's where we're at today. They'll do these things to me, says the Lord Jesus, because they know not me. And also he says they do not know him who sent me. And we're facing a world not now where there's favorability or where, as it were, sympathy is in the places of power. Not so much. There arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, the deliverer of Egypt, the one who brought such blessing, was quickly forgotten and the Israelites ended in that terrible bondage and persecution. Right. Now this morning, we move on. And I'm going to go to point number three, not point number two to start with. I just feel impressed to do that, so that's what we do. It's not me that says what to say. It's the Lord that has to tell me what to say, and then I will tell you what I've got to say. I want to look at the role, our role, and their role in the world. That is, the sort of life that they are called to live. What is it? Why is he leaving them behind? Why not take them with him? You know, that's what they must be thinking. Leaving them behind is hopeless. What can we do on our own? Well, he says, I'll show you the kind of life I'm looking for you to live. And we'll see it in detail this morning, coming out of the various parts of the discourse as he leads them into what he wants them to do. John chapter 15. Read it. It's encapsulated in a simple verse there. Verse 16. What's their role in the world? He says there, verse 16, Ye have not chosen me... But I have chosen you, and I have ordained, I've appointed this, I've appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Very important. A major role in the world for these disciples when he was gone is that they should be the source of fruit. They should show fruit in their life, in the world of persecution and hostility in which they would find themselves living. We should go forth and bear forth fruit. That's the message for us this morning and for the, today and for us in the world in which we live. And that your fruit should remain. And then whatsoever he shall ask of the Father in my name, 
he may give it you. A life of fruit bearing and in that fruit bearing a life of prayer. Right? I'll be dealing particularly with what it means to become, to live that life of fruit bearing. How is that life lived? How can we actually bring forth fruit? Because unto this were we appointed and for this were we ordained and chosen that we might be the source of fruit bearing on the earth while he is away. So, how can it be done? What's the kind of life that needs to be lived? Then also we will probably touch on what does it actually mean to bear fruit. Right? Now, let's start. What sort of life does a Christian live that is bringing fruit for God? It is demonstrating life in the world that belongs to another world. Let's look at it. Go to chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, he says, if you are one who loves me and left in this world, you live my life, your life, loving me and keeping my commandments. In other words, live your life by the word of God. Live your life by the law of God. Live your life in the fear of God. Get that? Living your life in the fear of God. Now, I've got to add this because it's the, the sayings of the day. It's not that you're frightened of him because you feel if I put a step out of line, he'll come down in fierce judgment on me and punishment. It's not that so much at all. You're living your life in the fear of God because you love him, you see, and you're fearful that you maybe you will actually displease him. I tell you, if you love somebody, the last thing you want to do is upset them, if I could put it that way, or against their wishes, or in any show or form, you don't really want to displease them. So the first idea in the fear of God, the commandments of God, under the law of God, is that you're actually quite fearful. The last thing you want to do is to displease the Lord. You are really concerned that you might find yourself Stepping outside of his standards, you know? You might find yourselves thinking in a different way, behaving in a different way, deciding in a different way. Actually, you find yourself stepping outside of his will. You do know he has a will for the believer, don't you? It's called the good and the perfect and the acceptable will of God. You do realise that he has set down in this book, the Scriptures, exactly how we think, exactly how we decide, exactly how we respond, the standards that we live by, and the boundaries which we never, never cross. You see, and you don't want to displease him. And you realise that if you will live by his commandments, by his word, in the fear of the Lord, there can only come blessing as an outcome. You know, the Lord never said to us not to do a thing. At any stage did he ever say it just to deprive us of something that is evidently going to do us good. He's only put up boundaries because if you go past those boundaries, you're going to do hurt. And more than that, he has set up standards whereby blessing will come and joy and peace and fruitfulness and believing will be the result. And whenever he has laid down, as it were, that guideline, that precept, it has been absolutely for our good. Now, the believer actually realizes that. And that motivates him also 
to look to live in the fear of God. The fear also, firstly, of displeasing him, the fear of stepping out of his will, the fear of missing the blessing which he has prescribed by the commandments, the laws, the standards, the guidelines that he has laid down for us in order to guide us in the way in which we live. You see, the believer is somebody who looks at the word of God and acknowledges its supremacy. God knows better than I do, that's why he said that. And acknowledges his absolute authority. I don't argue with the, with the word of God. The Christian looks and believes it and obeys it and follows it. It may not be that you understand it always, and you may tell the Lord you don't understand it always, but you don't sit there and defy it because you think you know better. You don't think that stand there and just reject it because it's not the thinking that happens to suit your situation. Instinctively, as when you say God said it, you think to yourself, well, that settles it. For now, I'm going to believe it, right? It's not a question of God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it, then I turn and believe it. And you start to live your life and you're constantly looking where you put your feet. You're constantly looking the direction that you take because you want to walk in that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. What you're doing is you're wanting to live in the fear of God by the commandments of God, under the law of God, in the good of the word of God. You see... What you're going to understand is this kind of life was exactly the life that the Lord Jesus lived when he was here on earth for 33 and a half years. Absolutely the same life. He lived entirely by the word of God. When Satan came in the temptations, what did he do? Quoted the word of God and said, sorry, this is what the Bible says. You see, he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. Understand that. The law, keeping his commandments. When he was, before he came into the world, through the psalmist, he said in Psalm 40, I delight to do thy will, O my God, thy law, your law, is within my heart. That's where I've determined to set my affections and my intentions and my whole being, for that's what the heart is in the scripture, the whole being of the person, thy law have I hid in my heart. Like the blessed man of Psalm 1, you know? What is it? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. But his delight? What? In the law of the Lord. And in that that law, he meditates day and night. And of course, the, the perfect picture of the psalm, the blessed man of Psalm 1, is the Lord Jesus himself. But you and I follow the steps of the psalmist. And live that same kind of life. And he said himself, look, I have come to uphold the law and to make it honourable. Right? He never lowered the standards of God. He never abolished, right, the commandments of God. They were there for the good and the guideline of the people of God and the blessing for the people of God. So the first thing is you live your life in, in the law, not under the law, in the good of the law of God. In one sense, under the law, but not for punishment and condemnation, but for guidance and for blessing, for instruction and for understanding. Yes, parents, teach your children the Ten Commandments. Of course, of course, of course. There's a lot more to the law than Ten Commandments. No, teach them the answer to the punishment of the law. Yes, to the condemnation of the law. Yes, but the standard of the law, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. And the Lord Jesus said it himself in his life, 
even in this very chapter 14 and verse 31, as the Father has given me commandment, so I do. Do you get that? Isn't that incredible? He says that the world may know that I love the Father later on, as the Father has given me commandment, so I do. There he is, setting that beautiful example. The apostles pick it up, living in the fear of the Lord. He says in Second Corinthians chapter Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse one, he said, We should be perfecting our holiness in the fear of God. See, when you start to walk like this, you love him and you fear to displease him. You just want to keep your life within his will and know the blessing of it. When you live like that, you are immediately a different person to the society in which you live. You stand out. Now that's what holiness really is all about. The root meaning of holiness is to be separate or different, you see? And immediately I see you, a man or a woman or a young person, and they're seeking to walk by the law of the Lord, by the standards of God. They will stand out as being separate and different, as someone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's part of your testimony in the world, that you're living your life in the fear of God. Ephesians 5 says, Submitting yourself to one another in the fear of God acknowledging the other, there's respect, there's a certain sense of honour that you give to your fellow Christians, as well as to all men. You see, and you do it in recognition of God requires you to do that, submitting yourself to one another in the fear of God. You go to Peter and he picks up the same idea and he says, he sums up life in the most marvellous way, really, in Second, First Peter 2. He says, honour all, love the brethren, Fear God, honour the king. That sums up your life, you know. What's your attitude to other people? You honour them. Hold them in respect and some esteem. Honour all, attitude to all. What's your attitude to your fellow believer? You should love your brother. That's what it says. What's your attitude to God? You fear God. And what's your attitude to authority? You honour the king. That's your attitude to authority. And really that maps out the Christian framework of thinking and the the world in which he moves and he applies all of these truths to the present situation in which they live. So that's the first step about a life that yields fruit for God. Now, there's more to it than that. Look at chapter 15 and go to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, see that? If you love me, you keep his commandments. That's what we have walking under his law. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. A life that's lived in the fear of God, you see, is a life that is lived in the love of God. Jude says, look, keep yourselves in the love of God. He talks about a world outside like Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about false teachers coming into the church. He talks about coming days of judgment. He talks about the unbelief of a world. And he says, but you yourselves, brethren, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, keeping yourselves in the love of God. And if I leave you with nothing else this morning, can I leave you with a desire in your heart to live your life constantly and every day, abiding in the sense of the love 
of God. It's the sweetest and most grand experience that you can ever know day by day. This is the life to covet. It's a life where you, yes, are deliberately and consciously, albeit failingly, but God knows your heart. You are seeking to love him. But it's more than that. It's where you are daily, literally conscious of the fact that he loves you. And every day that's just washing over you like a water of refreshment and cool. The fact that I'm living my life in the goodness of the love of God. Yes, I love him. But then there opens up this mighty ocean that he actually loves me. This is a life of peace, fulfillment, calm, joy, rest, contentment, satisfaction. There's an old poem that I learned years ago, The Man in the Glory. Look it up sometime in George Cutting. You'll find it on the internet. But it starts like this. It just says, I wake in the morning with thoughts of his love who's living for me in the glory above. How did you wake this morning? Huh? Grumpy? Huh? Another day? Huh? mumble. Huh? I'll be right when I've had my coffee. <laughs> Think about it living a life like this. I wake in the morning with thoughts of his love. I tell you, it will colour the day. It will calm your spirit and it will give you that sense within of peace and absolute contentment. So you see, that's the life that the Lord Jesus lived. What does it say in verse 10 again? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide. You will always be there in my love. Now, it's not a question of, well, if you don't, well, I won't love you anymore. But believe you me, you will, you will lose yourself, the sense, the awareness, the consciousness, and the blessedness of it actually happening to you on an ongoing basis, you see. That's what will happen. But he says, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. That's the, this is the Christ life. This is what it means when John says, as he is, so are we also in the world. Now how did he live? He lived his life in the fear of God. He lived his life in the love of God. And the Lord is saying to them, look, when I go, you can follow that same life. You live your life in the fear of God. And you live your life with his law hidden within your heart. And you live your life in the consciousness of the fact of the love of God. This is not something that is merely learnt as a creed. This is not something that's all about just doing something right. This is the consequence of walking in the will of God. A thing that fills your soul and warms your heart. And as the old Scotch lady said, it's better felt than telt. You get it? And it is. And if you can relate in any shape or form to what I'm saying, then you've got something of, a, of the glimpse of what this life is all about. This is the life to cover. This is, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. This is walking in the goodness of the knowledge of the Lord and the knowledge of God and the indwelling Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God made real in your soul. And you say, with wonder, the Son of God, he loved me and he gave his life for me. Now... 
there's more. Go to chapter 14 again. What does it say in verse 21? It's absolutely repeated. He that hath my commandments and keeps them. What's that? Walking in the fear of God. Right? He it is that loves me. Yes, that's how you show your love to him. But look at what comes. He that loves me shall be loved of my father and I will love him. That's beautiful, you know. That's the life. And will manifest myself to him. In other words, he says, you know, you think you won't see me and I've gone away and you'll have to wait somehow to get contact. I mean, they never had computers and telephones or anything, if you get what I mean. So that wasn't even in their thinking. He's going and we have no further contact. He says, you live this life like this. And he said, what you'll do is you'll find out that there'll be that blessed experience which often with us all is so rich at certain times. You're living your life where you are aware. You are aware of the presence of the Lord. See, it's like you might be, say, going down the shopping centre and I'm down the shopping centre and I see you up ahead I'm following you, you know. I've been following you for a few minutes, actually. I'm getting quite close to you, but you're not aware. And then I, I touch you on the shoulder, and you go, oh, you're aware of my presence. This is what this is meaning. He reveal, I reveal myself to you. I manifest. I let you know that I'm there. Now, this is the life that the Lord is telling them to live. A life lived in the Lord, fear of God, a life lived in the love of God, and a life that is lived in the presence of God. You get that one? A life that's lived in the presence of God, where you are, not only is it true to say he is there, and that is true, and it's quite true to say he never leaves you, that is absolutely true. What I'm bringing home this morning in practical terms is not just the fact of it, but the experience of it, the knowledge of it within, the feeling, if you like, that you know that he is there, not just because he said he would be there, but because he's shown himself to you, he's revealed himself to you. You know, he spoke his word to you that day, in your dilemma, in your grief maybe, in your perplexity, the word came. And you just said, oh, he's there, I know he's there. Paul says, look, at my first offence, no man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. Oh, did he, Paul? Well, did you see him? Oh, no, I never saw him, he said. But I'll tell you what, there was that within me that bore witness to the fact that his presence was real and it was just as though he was standing by my side, so full, so real, so absolute. Then you say, well, you know, yeah, but let me, could you tell us a bit more, what is it, what does it mean? How, how could he do that? How could he do that? Not just as it were, be an external thing, but also to be that which is within you in the heart of the believer, in the new, in the new nature that's in the believer, in the new life that's in the believer. How could it be? Look at verse 22 of John 14. Because they got the same problem. Judas, not the Iscariot, said, Lord, how will you reveal or manifest or show yourself to us and not unto the world? This is the answer. Here it is again. If a man love me, he will keep my word. The man that's walking in the fear of God because he loves him. All right? And my father will love him. 
And we, the Father and the Son, will come unto him and what? Hold his hand. No. Make our abode with him. This is something that is whereby God the Father, God the Son, come and dwell within the heart of the believer. You cannot have a relationship closer than that, nor can a person make themselves more real to you than that. This is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Why did we sing of heaven this morning? Why are we so sure we're going to be there? What is there within me that makes me respond by the presence of the Holy Spirit? He has brought the presence of God the Father and God the Son right into my soul even now. So when he talks about the Father's house with his many mansion, you say to yourself, yes, 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 there's a voice within and it says that's where I'm going, that's where you belong, then that is your home. That is your home. When you think of the future and all its glory, there it is, the voice within, the Christ within, who tells you he's taking you to his Father's house. In other words, he says, I'm taking you to where I live. To where I live. You've got the Lord Jesus present and conscious within you, living your life conscious of the presence of God. Get it again with you. Covet this life and pray earnestly that the Lord would lead you into a deeper understanding and experience of it because by this the fruit will come into your life. You see, it's not just that the Lord Jesus is in front of you, as it were, or God was in front of you. Well, of course he's in front of you. Doesn't he lead you all the way? Aren't you looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith? He is in front of you, but it's not just in front of you, all right? And it's not just that he's behind you. Is he behind me? Of course he's behind me. He's looking after me from attack from behind, you see? Protecting me. It's not just that he's beside you. I mean, is he beside me all the day? Of course he's beside me all the day. The angel of the Lord camps round about those that fear him. Both sides, if you like. I mean, is it just that he's underneath me, supporting me? Well, of course he's underneath me and supporting me. Underneath are the everlasting arms. You get that? But there's something more. He's not just in front, behind, beside and under. He is in you. He's abiding within you. Indeed, this is why he says to them in verse 18, of the same section of where he's, what he's talking about, he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He's not talking about the future. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. What's an orphan? An orphan is someone who's left to live on their own. The Lord says, no. If you understand this, living by the laws of Lord of God, living in the love of God, you'll find yourself living in the very presence of God, aware of it to such an extent, it will be just as if I never left you. Isn't that incredible? Just as if I never left you. And you know, when you get to heaven, will there be anything more than you've already got? Of course, because your faith will give place to sight and your imperfect experience of a perfect truth will suddenly be perfected. When face to face, 
I shall see him face to face in all his glory. Jesus Christ, who died for me. Oh, what a life. You're getting it. Living your life in the commandments of God. Living your life in the fear of God. Living your life in the love of God. And now we are living our lives conscious and in the presence of God. And it involves our whole person, our whole being. It affects us in how we think. For he invades the thoughts, as it were, the mind. It invades the vision, what your outlook is. It invades your feelings, your desires, your affections. And you say, finally, when you get the hang of it all, for me to live, Christ. End of story. For me to live, Christ. He's taken, as it were, total possession of you as you live your life in the presence of God and you realise he'll never, never go away. And it's not just because he said it and you've got to remind yourself of it. You know it in the experience of your own soul. Christianity is a creed. It's a doctrine. It has fact. It has history. It has experience. It has soul. It is a daily life of enjoying the presence of the Lord. I've told this before, but I read the story of a a young curate who had a a new diocese in Glasgow. He was a young man, and part of his uh, diocese was he had to visit uh, a slum area called the Gorbals. I've been to the Gorbals, but it was still a slum area then, 50-odd years ago. And um, there was an old lady, and she lived at the top of this tenement houses, and by goodness me, you've got to see them to believe how bad they were in those the days when I saw them, and they were far worse then. And so he went up all the stairs, and he got finally right up to the passageway. And the old lady lived in that little apartment. It was really a room. But he went to go to the door, and, um, you know, he heard voices. He heard a voice, and she was talking away. And so he thought, oh, dear, you know, she's got company. She's got a visitor. So uh, he went away. He came back the next day, and... Um, they would hear the voice again. And he thought, oh, okay. So he thought, oh, I'd better not interrupt. I'll... And he went the next day, and there was silence. So he knocked on the door, and she bid him come in. And uh, he went in and chatted to her and asked her how she was and, you know, um, how things were going, and just generally sought to comfort her. And he said, look, I, I came twice before, but uh, I heard you talking. It, it seemed you had company. And she said, yeah, I, I, I had company. Yeah, I had company. Yes, he said, two days I heard it, you had company. I, I had company. Yes, he said, I, I thought you had a visitor and I didn't want to interrupt. A visitor, she said. I knew I had a visitor. It was the Lord. He bides with me all day. He never goes away. Did you get that? I'd like the life that that little old lady had. Oh, we can laugh at the ignorance of the generations in the past, you know, and the simplicity of their faith. They're not very polished, are they? But I tell you what, it was real. Sometimes these, not sometimes, I say always this kind of person and that kind of story can teach you something and make you realise what you haven't got and what you wish you had more. And you said, Lord, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And as I move my prayers abound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. That's it. That's it. I want to take high ground. Sure I do. Live on higher ground in the presence of the Lord, in the joy of it in your soul. Because I tell you, live life like that. You will start to bear fruit. 
This is how he lived himself. Right? We've shown that. That's why the prophet said, when the Lord Jesus would come into the world, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. A parched earth that was barren, cursed. A fallen world and fallen humanity. But someone would come and be the vine, the bearer of life and the bearer of fruit. And God, as it were, and I speak carefully, he looked forward to it and he saw it through the prophet's eyes with great joy. And in, the, the, in his life he did exactly that. I kept my father's commandment. I've abode in, I abide in his love as I live in the fear of God, the commandments. And I live my life in the love of God and that is abiding in his love. And he says to the disciples, the rest of you may leave me, but I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Right to the end, he lived his life in the consciousness of the presence of God. He was that true vine, the source of life and fruit. So he says to us, I've chosen you to live the same kind of life so that you will be seen to have life and you will bear fruit. What's fruit? Just think that through. It's, it's a big subject, I won't go into it all. I just touch little things to make it real and you can read the discourse for yourself and see how profound it all is and how full of truth it is. <coughs> the illustration that's used is the illustration in chapter 15, and you all know it well, I am the vine, my father is the husband. I am the vine, the true. My father, the husband, and you are, as he teaches them, the branches. Now, when a branch is connected to the main vine, that branch has two things about it. One, it has life in it. Gets its life from that centre point. Two, it bears fruit. When it bears fruit, that branch is bearing witness, one, to the fact that it has got life in it, that it draws from the vine. But two, it is actually expressing the nature of the vine. Did you get that? Well, let me explain it to you. You know, I go down the backyard on our, our couple of acres there, and oh, it's all overgrown, you know, and you're pulling this out of the trees and that off the fence. And, Look at this vine. There's a tendril going along here, and it's all over the place. I'll grab hold of one and I'll follow it. What kind of vine it is, you know? And I get to the end, what do I see? I see some passion fruit starting to grow. And immediately I think, aha, that tendril or that part, that branch in that vine, declared to me the nature of the vine to which it belonged. Right? Could be grapes, couldn't it? Got a grapevine. Right? Could be a flower. Well, I wonder sort of, this is a weed. And you go to pull it out and say, oops, hold your horses, you know, this is a beautiful wisteria. If I wait long enough, it'll show its purple colour. So we could go on if you're a gardener. Now, you've got this branch and it's displaying the character of the vine, all right? <coughs> and now that is fruit-bearing, you know. When you and I start to display in our character, I say that first, our character, which is then reflected in our attitude and our behaviour, what is happening is something of the Lord Jesus Christ is being demonstrated in our life. And it, we can be looked at and say, he's got life, that person, and it's a different kind of life. 
and he's displaying different kinds of outcomes and behaviour that remind us, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I read that and thought about that, and I thought of those words, may the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And I looked it up. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Now you're getting somewhere, haven't you? You're getting somewhere with the meaning of what it means to bear fruit in a fruitless world. This is the way in which God has ordained that, that uh, the whole of his work will spread and his witness will continue in the world. You see, what happens is a soul comes to Christ. Why do we come? Because we've been convicted of our sin. Because we're repenting of our sin. We're seeking out God's salvation. And we find new life in Christ. And it's eternal life. And the eternal life is the very life of God in the soul of a man. That's an amazing description. That's It's a different quality, different kind of life. And because that life is there, what happens? There's a new birth. And I become a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old life, yes, it gave me the old creature, right? Now it's new life, new creature. And then I go out because I'm a new creature with a new life. I live that life. And that life which I now live is fruit. It, we can be, it can be seen that I have something in me which is of God. And I bear witness to the source of my life, who is Christ. I remember listening to a testimony of one man, and uh, he was a wild young fellow. I don't mean he was really bad, bad, but in today's language you just said he had a double dose of ADHD. You know, he's quite crackers, he really was. <laughs> um, daring, thoughtless, taking risks, and generally a bit of a pain in the neck socially. And he got his first job in a factory... And he said, uh, he went into the lunchroom and of course he had a whoopee time and made everybody laugh and like they carry on. And he said, there was one man there, he said, I, I spotted him. And he said, boy, he's sitting in the corner, he's reading his Bible and just ignoring me. He was reading his Bible. He said, never said a word. And he said, every time I went back in the lunchroom, he, everything was great. Then this guy would come in, he'd say, and i think, oh, oh. And he said, you know what? Every time I looked at him, I thought, God, God, God. And he said, in my wild thinking, and I was stupid, even he said, I just looked at every time and thought, that man is like God to me. See, see what it was? He was used for that man's, that boy's conviction at 16 of sin and the realisation of God. That man sitting in the corner, he said he wasn't always reading his Bible, somebody didn't say a word or do a thing, just there. It was a sense that it was the presence of God. Fellow believer, this is a life to live. This is the life to live. We live the loving the law of God, keeping the commandments of God, living in the love of God, living in the presence of God, and then we start to appear as lights in the world. He was the light of the world, but he's gone. We're left to shine the very same light through the character, right? Through the behaviour that we show. And there'll come a time when men will see our upright works and glorify our God which is in heaven, who is in heaven. This is the key point, right? The core of what it means to bear fruit. You give and show the life that's in you. 
the character of the one who saved you and you say and you learn to understand as he is, so are we now in this world. All that he is and all that he was expressed in the life of the believer. And so, it says in John 15 and 5, he that abides in me brings forth much fruit. It's inevitable that fruit comes out of your life if you are truly born again and saved. It's inevitable because the life within must be seen in the life without and expressed in the change of character due to a new birth and a new creation, right? So he said, he that abides in me brings forth much fruit. Not that he will do it or he should do it or he ought to try to do it. It actually will happen. It's inevitable. You can't be a Christian and not show it. Sorry, you can't. Oh, I'm a Christian. Look, pardon me telling stories, but I remember a lady once many years ago who came to see me and, oh boy, a story, you know, would make you go pink, red and white all at once. It was, the life was just ghastly. Anyway, I had to sort her out and I said, um, oh, hop up on the couch for something or other. And and she says to me, oh, well, of course I am a Christian. And without thinking, I said, well, I'm awfully glad you told me because I never would have known it. And I thought, ooh, you're not supposed to say that when you're a doctor, are you? <laughs> but that, that's, you get what I mean. <laughs> you get what I mean. All right, it's inevitable that that change will be there. Also what happens is that the Heavenly Father, he, he's the husbandman, he, he prunes the vine, all right? Never complain about pain in your life. Don't do it. Disappointments in life, they're often God's appointments. All right? Pain will often bring blessing. God allows things to come on us because there's things to be cut off. And it's not pleasant. Stop thinking, if my life is not good, the Lord's not with me. You know, all these terrible things are starting to happen to me and nobody loves me at all and doesn't appreciate me. Good. Good. Go and find the presence. Seek out the presence of the Lord. Because the Heavenly Father is wanting to make you depend more on him. He's cutting out the show of the leaves, you see. And the fruit, it says, in chapter 15 and verse 16, what does it say? And that your fruit should remain. And it will remain. It's there permanently. Why? Because it is actually the produce of God. God, the Holy Spirit, working within you with new life. And that is eternal life. And so there is a permanency. It will remain. And as we learn to live this life in the love and goodness and fullness of the presence of God, in the love of God, in the fear of God, what does John 15 say? You'll bear fruit, you'll bear more fruit, and you will bear much fruit. The Lord closes the evening in chapter 17 with a little word of prayer. No, it's not a little word, it's a mighty word of prayer. And what does he say? He prays for us and our fruit bearing. I can't bring this out, but I'll just touch it for you to go away and read. Just touch and we'll leave it. He says, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. He came to bring life, to bring light, To bring God. He was the true light. We are left as the lights of the world. He spoke the word of God. We're left to speak the word of God. He did the works of God. We're left to do the work of God. He glorified God on the earth. That's what he did. That sums up the life 
of the Lord Jesus. So we too must glorify God in our lives. Which is John 15 verse 8. In this is my Father glorified. Because you bear much fruit. Well the Lord help us all this morning. Perhaps to lift our eyes a little higher. To think upon a higher plane. And to press onward in the upward way. And new heights you may be gaining every day. But to learn to live your life in the love of God. In the fear of God and in the presence of God. And God help us all to glorify God. Just in the life that we're giving. And we could start it right now. Right now. Make that your goal and your ambition. And God bless us all. Amen. Lord, we bow at those feet this morning and we read these sections of scripture and we begin to understand who the teacher really is. We think of Nicodemus' words that he had come as one who could be a teacher and the Lord said to Nicodemus, but you're a teacher in Israel. But this morning we've sat at the feet of him who came to teach the word of God to display the meaning of that teaching and to live it in its fullness to instruct us to follow in his steps the Holy Spirit to enable us to do it better day by day and we pray Lord that we may just have that sweet experience a conscious knowledge of the divine presence the divine love and the divine law. Lord, separate us, we pray, and keep our hearts in the love of God. Keep us, we pray, that we may the joy, know the joy of the communion of the Holy Spirit, our strength and our stay until we arrive safely at home. Lord, we give thanks in that precious name. Amen.